This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 15 through 25. You can find it on page 944 in the Bibles in your rows if you'd like to follow along. Romans 8, 15 through 25. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Good morning. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, before we uh, get into our text this morning, uh, let's pray together. Lord, we, we ask that you would uh, meet with us even now by the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would open your word to us. Would you create in us a sense of, of longing, of hope, even in the midst of weariness and, and groaning, as Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8. Help us to see the glory that has come in, in Jesus Christ as he broke into the world with his first advent, and help us to long for that glory to be revealed in all its fullness at his second coming. Give us hearts to wait and to hope. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, it is uh, that time of year when your mailboxes are probably filling up with Christmas cards, and uh, some of you hate that, I know, but I kind of like it. Uh, My kids uh, really like Christmas cards. Uh, especially when they were little, I think it was this idea of getting real mail that was equally, you know, for them as it was for, for the grown-ups in the house. But there's all kinds of Christmas cards, aren't there? I mean, there are classic cards, kind of Norman Rockwell kind of scenes. That looks like a happy evening, doesn't it? Uh, although I will tell you, my family looks nothing like that on Christmas. We're never dressed that nicely. We're typically tearing through gifts. Someone's crying probably in the house. I'm frustrated trying to put together some toy or another that won't seem to go together right. But I like the cards because it gives me hope, right, that maybe someday we'll have Christmas experience like that. 
Of course, Santa makes his way onto a lot of cards, rightfully so, jolly old elf that he is. Uh, Some cards are religious. Some version of a nativity scene is probably the most common that you'll have. Some cards are funny. This one, of course, is a a reenactment of the famous scene from A Christmas Story, you know, where he gets his tongue stuck to the the pole. I almost always get a Charlie Brown card. Uh, People seem to know that I like Charlie Brown and the Peanuts comic strip, and this is the one where Linus says, uh, I never thought it was a bad tree, just needed a little love, I guess. Lots of people send out family pictures for Christmas cards nowadays. Most of these are really great, but every once in a while you get one that's a a little bit awkward. Uh, I I think she's supposed to be golfing uh, there, but if that dad and kid ever come up missing, I suggest the police take a look at her, right? Person of interest... Our youth pastor, Zach, has always wanted to send out a Christmas card like this next one here, but (laughs) alas, Anna, his wife, won't let him. Maybe next year, Zach, maybe next year. Here's a little girl reenacting a scene from a famous Christmas movie. Anybody know the movie? What, Die Hard? Yeah, there's quite a bit of uh, debate as to whether it's actually a Christmas movie. I'll let you have that debate amongst yourselves, but... But back to the nativity scenes for a second. Have you ever noticed that the scenes that are immortalized in a nativity are always after the baby Jesus is born, right? That's the image we capture and immortalize on Christmas cards. You never get a Christmas card with Mary like mid-labor, you know, yelling for an epidural, Joseph, you know, freaking out or passing out in the midst of the uh, stress of the situation. Now, there's a reason for that, right? The labor, the pain, isn't the thing we want to immortalize in an image and then send to people in their mailboxes. That's not the memory we're clinging to, right? It's the glory that comes afterward. But very often, the road to glory is paved with suffering, and Paul makes that clear here in Romans chapter 8. The sufferings of this present time, he refers to, verse 18. Or the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, verse 22. And not just creation, but he says, we ourselves groan inwardly as we wait, verse 23. And that's kind of what we've been talking about during Advent in this series. We've been talking about this season as a season of groaning, season of longing, season of hoping amidst weariness. And though the pain and the adversity can be strong, the hope of Advent is that there is glory to come. The glory that was manifest when Jesus first came into the world and the glory that will come when He returns to bring the fullness of His eternal kingdom. That's what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 8. And so this morning we're going to see how Paul tells us a weary world rejoices in a birth, in a rebirth, and in an adoption. The weary world rejoices in a birth, a rebirth, and an adoption. All right, so first let's think about the birth that we're rejoicing in. And here I'm talking about the birth of Jesus Christ, which is probably obvious given the time of year that it is, although it may not be obvious from our text this morning. Romans 8 is certainly not centered on the birth of Jesus Christ, although I will tell you it is assumed throughout the passage about what Paul is talking about here, and we'll circle back around to that in a minute. But we rejoice because at Christ's birth, Christ became like us. 
John chapter 1, verse 14, very famous Christmas text. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Or Galatians chapter 4, Paul writes, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The Word became flesh. He was born of a woman. Now, I'm not sure that's how I would come into the world if I were God. And I think I'd want to do something a little bit more, I don't know, stark, a little bit more audacious, maybe like those spaceships when they come in uh, Independence Day, if you've ever seen that movie, right, that cover the whole of the cities. That would get people's attention. Jaws would hit floors, kings would bow knees, everybody would take notice. But that's not how God does things. He invades the world much more quietly. Born in a manger, poor parents. First visitors were nobody shepherds. Second visitors were astrologers from a faraway land. It's not how I would do it. Thankfully, it is how God does it. And one of the reasons why is, why did He come in this way? He came to be like us. There's a place in the book of Hebrews where it says Christ is a great high priest because He can sympathize with our weakness because He suffered in every way. I always think of, when I think of that passage in Hebrews, I always think of uh, Dorothy Sayers, the British mystery writer and public intellectual. She wrote this about Christ's advent into the world. She says, for whatever reason, God chose to make people as they are, limited in suffering and subject to sorrows and death. He had the honesty and courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he's playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from us that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole human experience from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it all worthwhile. Only in Christianity do you have a God who knows what it's like to suffer, who knows what it's like to be human in a weary world. Whatever complaints you have against God, Christmas teaches us that no one can accuse God of not knowing what it's like. It's a story about Queen Victoria in England during her reign. She heard of of the wife of a laborer on one of her estates. She had lost her baby. And the queen had experienced the same profound trauma herself. She wanted to express her sympathy. And so she went there. She went to the house of the suffering woman and spent time with her. And afterwards, someone from the village asked the woman what the queen had said. I mean, the queen had never come to the village like that before. What had she said? And the woman said, nothing. She didn't say anything. She just held my hands. We cried. Christmas tells us that God became like us. He came down. And Christmas also tells us why he did this. He came to save us from our sins. The angel says to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Christmas is a rescue mission. I said we'd come back to talk about how Romans 8 assumes 
Christ's first advent into the world. Well, here it is, Romans 8, the very beginning, which we didn't read earlier. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. See, the Bible teaches that on our own, on our own, we are all condemned. On our own, we're guilty. All of us have sinned. All of us fall short of the glory of God. All of us are lawbreakers. I mean, who among us has lived the way the Lord has asked us to live, has demanded that we live? Who among us has loved the Lord our God with all our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength, every moment of our lives devoted toward Him? Who's done that answer? No one. In fact, we managed to push God out of the center of our lives and we put ourselves into the middle. Who among us has lived toward each other in the way that God has asked us? Who among us has truly loved our neighbors as ourselves in all times, in every way, putting their needs above our own? No cheap shots or disparaging remarks, always fair and kind, never cold or indifferent, giving generously, never turning a blind eye toward pain or suffering. Who does this? Answer, no one. All of us are guilty. In A Christmas Carol, Scrooge sees Jacob Marley, his old partner now dead, and as Marley comes to him, he comes with this long chain rattling behind him. It's heavy and it's hard for him to move as he drags it. And Scrooge is terrified at seeing Marley's ghost, but he's also curious. What's with the chain? Marley explains that the chain is the record of all his misdeeds. All of his sins have been counted up and crafted link upon link and now attached to him forever. Scrooge says, that's horrible. But Marley says, you have not yet seen the chain that you are crafting for yourself. All of us are sinners. Condemned by the law, we all drag our chains around This is where Christmas is tidings of comfort and joy. This is where the weary world rejoices because Christ has come to cut the chain, to free you from your slavery and condemnation. He comes on a rescue mission to save us from our sin. As Paul says in Romans 8, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. That is, Jesus came to pay the penalty for our sins. And the English poet John Donne put it this way. He said, the whole of Christ's life was a continual passion. Others die martyrs, but Christ was born a martyr. He found a Golgotha where he was crucified, even in Bethlehem where he was born. For to his tenderness then, the straws were almost as sharp as the thorns after. And the manger as uneasy at first as the cross at last. His birth and his death were but one continual act. And his Christmas day and his Good Friday are but the evening and morning of one and the same day. From the crib to the cross is an inseparable line. The weary world rejoices because Christ has come into the world to save sinners. So we rejoice in a birth. But Jesus' birth isn't the only one that we're thinking about this morning. 
we rejoice also in a rebirth. Jesus himself used that image of being born again in his conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And Nicodemus was understandably confused about this. How can I climb back into my mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus explains it to him. We're talking about renewal here. We're talking about being made new again. We're talking about a recreation. And in Romans chapter 8, Paul says this kind of recreation, this renewal will happen both to the created world and also to his people. First, let's think about the rebirth of creation. Now, why does it need a rebirth? Why does it need a renewal? Because the world as it is now is not as it's supposed to be. And we talked about this at length last week, so I won't belabor it too much here, other than to point out the words, the descriptors that Paul uses to show us what a weary world is like. First word he uses in verse 20 is futility. Some translations have it frustration. The world was subjected to frustration. The world isn't working as it's supposed to. It's actually the same word for vanity in the Greek translation of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is written in Hebrew, but when it's translated to Greek, it uses this word, vanity of vanities. And the whole book of Ecclesiastes really can be read as a meditation on the futility experienced in a weary world. Nature is alienated from us, from itself. It's not as beautiful or great or harmonious as it was designed to be. Futility. Second word Paul uses is corruption. Verse 21. The creation is in bondage to corruption, or some translations say decay. Things fall apart in this world. The second law of thermodynamics, right? Everything is subject to death, to winding down, to decomposition. We see things falling apart all around us. Futility, corruption, and then finally he uses the word pain. Groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, he says. As it is, this world is one that is full of suffering. This world is one of weariness and hurt, all longing to be set free. But Paul says the future for this world is one of freedom and restoration. The weary world rejoices because, verse 18, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And the creation itself, verse 19, is waiting for this redemption. He calls it an eager longing. And the image is of somebody standing on their toes just waiting for something to happen, like a little kid sort of peeking around the corner looking for the parade to start, right? This anticipation building up, eager Longing, an eager longing for what? What are we looking around the corner for? What are we on our tiptoes to see? Paul says it's the revealing of the sons of God. Because it's not just the rebirth of the heavens and the earth, but it's the rebirth of a people for himself. Way back in the early pages of Scripture, in the book of Genesis, God's created world was not said to be complete until he made men and women, until he made humanity, right? That sometimes theologians call uh, humans the crown of creation. Genesis 1, God made the heavens and the earth, remember, and he says, and it was good. He made the sea and the land, and it was good. The animals and the birds, and it was good. But it wasn't until he made men and women, male and female, until he made humanity, that he said it was very good. In other words, the creation wasn't done until he had made people. And the same can be said for the new creation. 
The created world is eagerly longing for the revealing of the sons of God because the new creation won't be ready, won't be complete until a redeemed humanity is ready to enter into it. And so Paul says then, we groan too, verse 23, as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. Now we'll talk about adoption in a moment, but it is worth noting here that Paul says, in one sense, we've already been adopted, we already can claim this family name for ourselves because of what Jesus has done in his first coming. But it's only when we enter into the new creation that the full manifestation of our identity as children of God will be revealed. And so then we wait for Christ's second advent. We groan. We eagerly long. We hope. Those are all advent words, right? Expectation. Watching, waiting, longing for the coming glory of renewal. The weary world rejoices in a birth, rejoices in a rebirth, and then finally, we rejoice in an adoption. You know, we set up our little manger scenes. One of the things we're reminded of is that when Jesus came into the world, he came into a family. Jesus came into the world with a mother, Mary. Also, he came into the world with an adoptive father, Joseph. We later learned that he had siblings. One of them, James, became a church leader in Jerusalem. God sent his son into the world, into a family. And that tells us something about the significance of families, doesn't it? One psychiatrist has written, children who don't experience a home live all their lives with a fundamental inability of attachment. Now that may be a little fatalistic, but it does underscore how important a family is. And by home, the psychiatrist means more than a house, right? A home is built on relationships of belonging and acceptance, which makes families somewhat unique in our world, right? Because most of our relationships are conditional. They're based on performance or earning or beauty or whatever, but home is not supposed to be that way. At home, you're loved, no matter what, best day, worst day. Home is meant to be a place of love. At least that's the kind of home that we all long for. That's why Christmas dinner has so much symbolism attached to it, right? We even have movies called Home for the Holidays. We have a sense that that's how things are supposed to be. Even, even Scrooge right, says to Bob Cratchit, he says, I guess you'll be wanting Christmas Day off, right? Even Scrooge knows you should be home with family on Christmas. This is also why holidays are so hard for some. Lost loved ones, broken relationships, family estrangements, all those things are felt more acutely this time of year. And perhaps you know someone who needs reaching out to this year, and maybe that's your big takeaway from this sermon this morning is you need to reach out to somebody that you know that it needs reaching out to this year. The importance of family, the pain of loss are felt more acutely. You might also consider going to Valley Church's Blue Christmas celebration that they're having uh, here in Norwood, December 19th, 7 o'clock, talking about that same thing, heartache and hurt and loneliness. Jesus came into the world so that we could be made new. And part of that, he was born into a family so that we could be adopted into his family. You see that theme throughout our passage, verse 15. 
Paul says, you've received the spirit of adoption as sons. Verse 16, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Verse 23, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. Now, what what are the privileges of being part of God's family? What are the privileges of being adopted sons and daughters of God? Well, there's probably too many to count, but Paul mentions or intimates that three of them here. The first privilege of being adopted into God's family is a kind of intimacy with God. Verse 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoptions as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Paul's saying the spirit replaces fear with freedom in our relationship to God. The freedom that comes from knowing that God is your Father. You might have heard that term Abba. It's it's even more familiar than the term Father. It means something like Daddy. An intimate, a close, a dear term. Dan Wells is an Anglican minister in England. He was the pastor of a parish community with a large Hasidic Jewish Population. He said on Saturdays when he would sit in his study working on the sermon, he would see Jewish families walking past on their way to the synagogue, usually with the father at the head of the family, and often the children would run to catch up and they were crying out, Abba, Abba. Same kind of tenderness and intimacy is what Paul's referring to here. It's the term that Jesus used. In prayer, especially in his prayers of deep longing. In the Garden of Gethsemane, for example, in Mark 14, he cries out, Abba. Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, calls Abba, Father, familiar, intimate, dear, close. And now, Paul says, the Holy Spirit leads us to use that term to call out to God in that same way because through Jesus, we're adopted into his family. John chapter 1, verse 12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. It's an intimacy that comes with being adopted into the family. But secondly, there's a a confidence or a security. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Sometimes theologians have called this the inward testimony of the Holy Spirit or the inward witness of the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that mean? Well, think about it this way. Paul says, the Spirit bears witness that we are children of God. So imagine for a second that there's a trial going on, right? And for many of you, you don't have to think very hard because this is playing out in your life and in your psyche all the time. There's a trial going on and your spirit is saying something like, I think I'm a child of God. I think I belong to Jesus. I've made a profession of faith. But then there's another voice, and sometimes that voice comes to you from the outside. Sometimes that voice comes from deep on the inside. And that other voice is an accuser, and it's saying something like, would a child of God do what you just did last night? Would a child of God nurse the resentment and the anger and the bitterness? Would a child of God indulge in the lusts that you have? Would a child of God be as selfish as you? Would a child of God have resentment and anger that way? No way. It doesn't look good. You're on trial, and it seems to be that there's some real evidence mounting against you. Just then, the defense attorney calls. 
He calls in an expert witness, a surprise witness. No one sees it coming. In comes the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit testifies along the same lines as your spirit. The Spirit, though, is an expert and knows the mind of God completely because He is God. And He says, you are a child of God. He testifies that you belong to the family. You belong to Jesus in spite of your sins, in spite of your failings. God loves you. He calls you His own. Holy Spirit testifies alongside your spirit. There's a confidence and a security that comes when the spirit speaks that we're adopted into God's family. There's a confidence and a security. And then finally, being adopted into God's family means there's an inheritance for us. Picking up at the end of verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, verse 17, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, in ancient times, uh, all children could be loved, but it was usually only the firstborn son who was the heir, right? And there's it might feel strange to us, but you've got to remember, this was a world in which there were no liquid assets. You can't just divide things up very easily. So if you want family wealth to be passed down and you just the family wealth is caught up in the farm, let's say the family farm, and you have five kids, you can't divide the farm up five ways and split it up because now its earning potential, its wealth potential is, is divided as well, right? It's not able to be chopped up in that way. So usually the firstborn son or one heir is picked and they get the lion's share, and then the others become supporters or are supported by the heir. So the firstborn son then becomes the heir. Others sort of come in under that. But what's breathtaking here is that Paul says all Christians, we have a firstborn brother, Jesus Christ, but all Christians are heirs of the living God. We all get an inheritance in the kingdom of God, there'll be something so grand and so glorious in store for us, we can barely fathom it now. The wealth of Jesus Christ, our older brother, is made available to us as well. Paul says in another place, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. While we wait, there will be suffering, just as there was for Jesus, suffering before glory. But that path of suffering will lead to an inheritance, an unspeakable glory in the eternal kingdom. Now let me just conclude by saying this. If you want to take one concept away this morning, here's what I want you to remember. Christmas is about being adopted into God's family. Paul says, because Christ has come into the world to redeem those who are under the law, we can have adoption as sons. We have the Spirit of God in our hearts. We can cry out, not just to our Maker or our Creator, but we can call Him Abba, Father. We can call Him Dad. There's that kind of closeness and intimacy. Because of Christmas, slaves to sin become sons and daughters of God. And so when you see the lights, when you see the presents, when you see the manger scenes this year, when you hear the Christmas carols, be thinking. Christmas is really about being adopted into God's family. Rupert Higgins is a British theologian. 
And as he was writing about this passage, he said this. He said, I don't know who my biological parents are. When I was one year old, I was in a children's home and I had no parents. And then some people came to adopt me. I became their son and their love changed me. They put their arms around me. They educated me. They poured their love into me. They fed me. I became their son and their love changed me. That's what Christmas is about. God runs the biggest adoption agency in the world. Will you reflect on that this Christmas? The weary world rejoices in the birth of Christ and the rebirth of the new heavens and the new earth, but also a people for himself. And the weary world rejoices in our adoption into God's family. So would you pray with me? And we'll sing together and come to the Lord's table. But let's pray. Father, we ask that you would deepen our understanding of Christmas. Would you help us to find joy and great hope in Christ's first coming into the world, that he was born into a human family so that we might be adopted into his family, which is the best news in all the world. And we pray, too, that we would watch and wait and hope as we await his second coming. Would you give us that eager longing that Paul talks about? And we might long for this inheritance in the eternal kingdom. We pray in the name of Christ Jesus, who came to save us from our sins. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.